folks, and welcome to the Empowering Dietitians podcast, where each week I explore a different topic to help you feel more confident and connected to your work as a dietitian. I'm your host, Jess Sertikoff Ramola. I'm a registered dietitian, dietitian supervisor, and owner of Empowering Dietitians where I work with dietitians just like you who are tired of the status quo in our field and are ready to reclaim their confidence, passion, and purpose. In today's episode, I have two topics to share, really. I'll be discussing the risk of eating disorders and disordered eating within the field of dietetics and what we can be doing to address it moving forward. And I'll also be sharing about the roller coaster of emotions I experienced personally over the past year being interviewed by Bustle on a piece written on this very topic. And don't forget to stay tuned all the way to the end if you want to hear an exciting announcement about empowering dietitians. How many regrets do you have in life? Whenever I reflect on that question, I feel conflicted. On the one hand, I have absolutely done and said things that I wish I could take back. I've hurt people. Of course, I wish I hadn't. On the other hand, I can't separate those mistakes from who I am today. If we're talking in hypotheticals, sure. I would have loved to have learned my lessons the easy way instead of the hard way. And I would love to have grown as a person, developed the deep sense of self I have to this day without first hurting others. Sounds like a nice world to live in. Definitely a convenient one. But in this world, in this reality, I did learn some things the hard way. And I'm not so sure I would be the person I am today if I hadn't. And also, that doesn't mean there aren't moments. There are. There are moments where I'm faced with the consequences of my decision. And I felt that fleeting regret. Those thoughts of, why didn't I know better? Or, how could I have been so naive? Maybe even... What was I thinking? If only we could see the domino effect of any given choice before making it, right? I recently felt that twinge of foreboding, looking back on the decisions of my past self and thinking, Jess, what were you thinking? And I want to talk to you about it, especially now that I'm on the other side, or I think on the other side of it. I'm at least further through it than I was before. And really, there are two parts of this episode. First, there is the topic in the title of this episode, eating disorders amongst dietitians. And then there is another layer, a conversation around my own anxiety around my decisions to contribute to an article on the subject. And that's where this story begins. Around May or June of 2021, I was approached by a writer and editor for Bustle about a piece on eating disorders amongst dietitians. She had received my name from another dietitian who knew that I 
speak pretty openly about my own disordered past and the impact that my nutrition education had on my relationship with food. Still, I was hesitant at first. While I speak openly about the issues in our field on my own platforms, I do it with the specific intention of lifting us up. And I am in as complete control of my message as anyone is when they're on my platforms. And I do this, I have these conversations, I'm open about the issues in our field because I do it to say, we need to do better. We can do better. And here are some ideas to get us started. But by putting my story in the hands of a journalist with no vested interest in the credibility of our field, would I be in turn contributing to a scathing critique? Would I be acting unethically? Would my words be used to discredit the profession? So before agreeing to contribute to the piece, I set up a phone call with the journalist to understand her intentions behind the article and what the article was seeking to address. I voiced my concerns. I stated my ethical integrity and boundaries. And by the end of the conversation, I actually felt reassured. I felt as though the intentions for the article uh, were not to bash dietitians, but rather to say that our conventional approach to nutritional well-being and health is flawed, that even dietitians aren't immune, and underscoring how a shift to a non-diet weight-inclusive approach is a promising path forward. So I agreed to contribute. We had a phone interview. It was recorded. Then uh, in early September, she asked for a follow-up interview with some extra questions. I agreed to do it um, on the drive up to Ithaca, New York, two days before my wedding, with my car packed to the brim with decorations and favors and clothes and supplies. When she called, I was in the parking lot of a shopping center while my husband was desperately running into every pharmacy he could find looking for rapid COVID tests as some of our guests were having a hard time finding them for themselves. In short, to paint a picture of the scene, I was distracted. So, you know, pro tip number one of this episode, do not agree to bear your soul to a reporter two days before your wedding while you're emotional and distracted from all the stress. That was on me for making that decision. Now, we had that interview, it was recorded, and after that, I didn't hear from the journalist. I did think about the article periodically, what had happened to it. I mostly assumed it wasn't going to be published. And then last month, a full year after my initial interview, I received an email from a fact checker listing about 10 or so quote unquote facts about my life for this article. And reading through that list, I went into a panic. About one or two of the statements listed were 100% accurate. Another handful were flat out incorrect. The vast majority of them were 
technically correct, but worded in a way that did not accurately reflect my life or my experience. And in that moment, I feared the worst. I feared exactly what I had worried about when I was first contacted, that this article was going to destroy the credibility of our profession and the blood would be on my own hands. At this point, I'll be honest, I wanted nothing to do with the article. Of course, I hadn't read the actual article. I was very much in a state of catastrophizing, which we'll talk about in a second. So naturally, I did what any 32-year-old grown-ass adult does when something scary and stressful happens. I called my mom. <laughs> she helped me talk it through. I was able to then calm my nervous system down. And I took it one step at a time. First, I emailed the fact checker and I explained that no, those statements do not represent my experience accurately, and to print them as such would be misrepresentation. Second, I waited. I waited for her reply, and while I was waiting, I played that scary script out to the end. This is a tactic I often work with my dietitian clients on, and I use it myself all the time. It's not perfect. It, it can backfire if you're actively in a state of catastrophizing, um, which is why I calmed my nervous system down first, right? I, I took a step back first. And then I said, okay, let's say this article does get published. And let's say it is as bad as I'm imagining it could be. And then let's say maybe the Academy hears about it and reads it and they do come after my credentials. What then? What will I do? The short answer is I would survive. First of all, there is no reason why I have to be a dietitian to do the work that I do. My business wouldn't likely be threatened at all, even if I had my RD credential stripped. But let's go like really worst case scenario. Let's say it is. Let's say empowering dietitians were to close. Okay, well, that would be okay too. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd be sad. I love what I do. I love this business. But I'd be okay. I could work part-time at my husband's shop. I could write. I could go back to school. In even a short minute or two of thinking it through, I recognized this wouldn't be the end of me. And then I asked myself, now that I have a plan for the worst possible scenario, is this worst case scenario that I'm imagining the most likely worst case scenario? As in all of these things that I'm afraid of happening, are they likely to happen? The answer is no, absolutely not. The article could come out and be totally fine. The article could come out and be a shit show, sure, but no one picks up on it. I learned from my mistakes and I move on. Or even let's go a little bit worse. The article could come out and be a shit show and people do call me in or out for it. Most likely I would get a warning. Maybe if we're going like really worst case scenario, my credentials might be suspended. Maybe I'd have to be held publicly accountable and issue a statement. I wouldn't likely just 
straight up lose my RD credential and my business in one fell swoop, especially when I have built a business based off my own ethical integrity. In other words, I couldn't predict the future, but if I had to put money on one thing happening, I wouldn't be putting my money on that worst case scenario I concocted with my wild imagination. It could still be stressful. It could still have consequences that I'd have to face, but it likely wouldn't destroy my career. Now, while all of this processing was happening on my end, you know, reassuring me that I, I did have a path forward, that I was going to be okay, that I could take on whatever happened next, I heard back from the fact checker. I was hesitant to speak to her further at this point, worrying that anything that I said would again be misconstrued and inaccurately represented, but I did agree. We talked. I went line by line through each statement, explaining what was factual and what wasn't. We agreed to strike certain quotes from the article, reword other statements. I was able to make clarifications. I then emailed the fact checker the full list of revisions that we had agreed to in order to keep a paper trail. And then I never heard back from her. So for the past several weeks, yeah, there's been a bit of that underlying anxiety. Did she get my email? Is she going to make the revisions that we agreed upon? Will the article ever freaking come out? And then it did. The article came out last week. As I'm recording this, the article came out yesterday. <laughs> and I read it. And it was totally 100% fine. I mean, at least from my perspective, I suppose someone out there might still dislike it. That's valid, but I'm actually really happy with the article. And that's the thing. So often the fears that we create in our minds are just that. They're fears in our minds, stories that our brains create. Generally speaking, anxiety isn't reality. Or maybe I should say our anxieties aren't reality at all. So often I have to remind myself as someone who lives with anxiety that my anxiety is not usually the most reliable source of information. And that when I am in the middle of experiencing distress from worries about, especially an event that hasn't even happened yet, it's not the time to jump to conclusions or even necessarily spring into action. Rather, it's an invitation for me to take a step back, focus on my breath, and take time to regulate my nervous system. I can problem solve later if I need to. I'm good at problem solving. I can do it. But right then, right in that moment when I'm feeling the most anxious or the most distressed, I might be trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist now and is not going to exist in the future either. As the saying goes, for all I know, I could be making a mountain out of a molehill. Now, I'm glad that I advocated for myself in this situation. I'm glad that I took the time to speak with the fact checker and that I was able to uh, clarify some of the quotations and, uh, and contribute in a way that was factual. 
And I am also glad that I contributed to this article. I don't regret it. In the middle of it, when I was most distressed, I questioned it. And I thought, what was I thinking? Why did I do this? Why did I agree to contribute? Why did I give up control of my story? And now I can say again with a little space and having read it, I don't regret it because the article is bringing to light an important topic. Dietitians do struggle with eating disorders and disordered eating. And it isn't spoken about enough. When I first started empowering dietitians, the only statement I could find from the academy about eating disorders amongst dietitians was one that essentially denied the problem existed. The academy rep being interviewed at the time said that dietitians do not struggle with eating disorders, at least not in higher rates than the average population. In fact, they said our education makes us less likely to experience disordered eating. Which, to put it bluntly, is absolute bullshit. <laughs> it is true for some dietitians, right? Um, I've definitely spoken with dietitians who have said that learning about nutrition actually either helped them recover for, from an eating disorder or maybe even buffered them from developing one. But for many, myself included, my training as a dietitian was fuel to the fire. In the article, which I will link to the show notes if you're interested in reading it, I, I highly recommend you give it a read. The Academy sang a slightly different tune this time around, but still, honestly, a little tone deaf. This time they acknowledged that dietitians can and do struggle with both disordered eating and eating disorders, but admitted that they have zero plans to address it. As it was explained to me before, they don't understand how they can possibly address this issue without... I believe they said violating nutrition students or practicing dietitians' privacy, which is, again, bullshit. So I'm going to talk about it today in the rest of this episode and share with you what we can be doing to address this issue more effectively, because we deserve support. We deserve more than we've been given. I'm tired of being swept under the rug or being told that there simply isn't anything we can do about it. It just is what it is. There absolutely are things we can do about it. And I'm going to give you five, just five. There's plenty more, but here are five big ones to get us started. Number one, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it and not be afraid of losing our credentials as a result of it. I remember when I first started empowering dietitians, part of my vision was to create a space to support other dietitians with their own food and body image struggles. I didn't want to solely talk about confidence because guess what? Part of what impacts our confidence is our relationship with food and body. There are so many pressures to look and act the part and that can lead to a lot of insecurities, which can, you guessed it, negatively impact our confidence. Only my business coach at the time didn't see it that way. She told me, and I quote, that leaves a bad taste in my mouth. 
the idea that a dietitian would market herself as helping other dietitians with disordered eating and body image. So what did I know? I didn't know anything about marketing or running a business. So I listened. I downplayed it. I didn't talk about it much at first. I do now because I know that coach was wrong. I understand why she felt that way, but I'm not really here to coddle anyone. I'm definitely not a tough love supervisor by any means, but I don't shy away from hard conversations. I'm constantly talking to my dietitians about how we can learn how to sit with discomfort instead of immediately pushing away from it. And this here is a hard conversation. And I also made the switch because I struggled with my relationship with food and body for too long without any support. My eating disorder went fully undiagnosed. Knowing what I know, I'd have to say it's pretty classic orthorexia where it was. Um, But when I say that I had an eating disorder, that's self-diagnosis. No one flagged it. No one diagnosed me. And as I was recovering myself through intuitive eating, I started to notice that I wasn't the only one. Interns, colleagues, it turns out I wasn't the exception. I wasn't the weird dietitian struggling with her relationship with food or body image. I was the norm. And I know that it's hard to be a dietitian. I know it's hard to have everyone's eyes on your plate at every party you go to. I know the pressure to lose weight or stay at a lower weight in order to be credible or stay credible. I know the trauma of peers testing each other's body fat using calibers in front of the whole class and the judgment of bringing the wrong snack to class. If I haven't experienced it personally, I've seen it. I've heard it from other dietitians. And you don't go through all of that and not have it affect you. Even if you haven't and don't struggle with an eating disorder, there is often stress around our relationship with food and body because of the expectations placed on us professionally. So we have to talk about it. Talk about it with students and interns. Talk about it with friends and family. Talk about it with colleagues. Bring it up at conferences. Let others know that if they're struggling, they're not frauds and there is no shame. Let them know that you've struggled too. Share with them the reasons why it's hard to maintain a strong relationship with food and body in this field. And talk to them about the ways that weight stigma and fat phobic curriculum harm us all. The more we can pull back the curtain, the more awareness we can bring. Which leads me to number two. We have to address weight stigma and disordered practices in the curriculum. We are teaching our students disordered practices. Standard nutrition information is honestly a lot of empty words and conditional permission. That is, it sounds good in theory right? Eat a variety of foods. Don't eliminate things unless there's a real medical reason for it, like an allergy, right? But in practice, 
in actually implementing these quote-unquote healthy habits, there is so much restriction. Now, before I, I go on and give examples, I do want to give a content warning. I am about to spout off some basic nutrition recommendations that are taught in school, and this includes numbers, numbers that we've all learned at various points. So if you aren't in a place where you can hear numeric guidelines for dietary intake of various nutrients, you may want to skip ahead about 30, 35 seconds or so, right? So in theory, the recommendations seem innocuous, but in practice, there's so much restriction. Sure, we say eat a variety of foods, but then turn around and say, but, right? But make sure saturated fat makes up, what, less than 5% of your daily intake? I actually didn't double check that. I'm a little rusty. <laughs> or don't have more than, what, 1,600 to 12, 2,300 milligrams of salt in a day. Keep an eye on added sugars. Get at least 20 to 30 grams of fiber. Even one gram of trans fat skyrockets your risk of heart disease. And for every 3,500 extra calories you consume, you're going to gain a pound of weight. The list goes on. Saying that we as a profession promote a quote-unquote all-foods-fit approach and that we don't encourage dieting or restriction is not the same thing as actually promoting an all-foods-fit approach and not encouraging dieting or restriction. Because ultimately, as a profession, we are still too wrapped up in our own fat phobia, ableism, and internal locus of worldviews to avoid the promotion of disordered habits. We need to be taught about implicit bias and privilege in a way that isn't steeped in shame and guilt. It has to be normalized. We need to do away with the calipers and food tracking to look at health beyond body size and honestly help health beyond physical health. And to stop implying that health is even within our direct control in the first place. I know that our profession as it currently stands is hinged on this concept of like take charge of your health. And all you have to do is live a healthy lifestyle and make healthy be cho choices and you'll be healthy. This messaging is so problematic because it explicitly states that our health status is our own doing. And it therefore implies that if you're not healthy, you're not doing enough. And if health is even partially defined by the size of our bodies, which it is currently, I didn't say accurately, it is currently the way we approach health, then anyone in a larger body must not be doing enough for their health. That's the message we learn. It's rugged individualism at its finest where capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy all intersect. This is honestly the number one thing we can be doing as a profession, a complete overhaul of the curriculum and therefore the culture of health that gets perpetuated. If you're in academia already, start with a class. Start with a lesson within a class. If you're not in academia, start with a guest lecture. I've guest lectured at college nutrition classes talking about these topics. Start wherever you need to start, however small you need to start. But do start. 
Now, the other statement the Academy has made is not only that they don't really know what to do about this issue, but that they can't intervene if they see a student or dietitian struggling, which is not true. And that's where the third change comes in. We need to provide support for students who may be struggling. When I was in grad school for mental health counseling, you better believe the topic of our own mental health came up. Not to shame us or to stigmatize us, but to say, hey, it's pretty common for students to struggle. And if you're struggling, we want you to reach out. We want to help you. I remember in stark contrast during that day in Nutrition 101 where we had to do all of those body fat measurements. And when I did the Tanita scale, the bio and electrical impedance scale, my body fat percentage came back very low. It was under the threshold for health for the average adult woman. And I freaked out. I went to the professor and was like, you literally just taught us that a woman with this low of a percentage is at severe risk. Should I be worried? Now, at the time I was on the pill, so I had no indication of what my menstrual health was like. I couldn't use that as a barometer for, you know, did I lose my period at this weight? Um, I, I didn't know that, so I had no idea. And do you know what my professor said to me when I asked, like, hey, is this a problem? She said, no, don't worry about it. Those scales aren't accurate. I'm sure you're fine. At the time, I remember thinking, well, if it isn't accurate, why are we using it? And I still have that question that I want to ask. And now I add a second question, which is, how, how can you have a 20-year-old young woman in a class for nutrition, approach you with a body fat percentage low enough that her health may be at risk, and you brush it off saying, don't worry about it, you're probably fine. That can't happen. Now, I don't want to swing in the other direction where we start singling students out or stigmatizing them for their bodies or food choices. It is, to be sure, a delicate balance. I have in the past, I've always lived in a uh, thin body with a lot of thin privilege. And uh, in high school, before my relationship with food had been uh, compromised at all, um, I got sick. I had Lyme followed by mono. I lost a considerable amount of weight. I was in an even smaller body. And a teacher went to my guidance counselor and said, hey, I think she has an eating disorder. And they pulled me out of class and started interrogating me. And it traumatized me. So no, I don't think that's the answer either. That's not how we handle it. In fact, the very fact that it's not normalized is leading to those types of shame-based, upsetting situations, which is exactly why this has to be normalized. It shouldn't be singling students out from the start. It should start with educating all students about the risks of disordered eating within the profession. 
and letting them know that if they struggle, they deserve support. Remove the shame, remove the stigma. Don't generalize and make assumptions about the health of a student based only on what they look like. But really keep an eye out knowing that all of us are at risk. We can be proactive. Maybe that means requiring some level of supervision support for all students, small groups or individually. Either way, it's got to change. Can't sweep it under the rug like we have been. By the way, this also goes hand in hand with another piece of this, which is confronting our own implicit biases, including fat phobia, racism, and ableism, because we can't expect professors and preceptors to be looking out for the best interests of their students and interns if they themselves are struggling or have yet to confront their own gremlins, which flows nicely into change number four. We have to normalize supervision for practicing dietitians. The idea that once we get into the field, we don't need help is absurd. In fact, the topic of supervision apparently gets pitched regularly at FINCI, and it gets rejected every year. For whatever reason, the academy doesn't support the idea of supervision. Maybe they're concerned with scope. They're always worried about scope of practice. I don't know. I hope that it's something like that because the alternative explanation that I've been able to think up is that they have some vested interest in us continuing to struggle. Maybe they hold power over us if we're overwhelmed, burnt out, and isolated. I hope that's just my cynicism coming out and not the truth. Regardless, we need spaces to go for our concerns. We need to normalize talking about how our work impacts our self-image, confidence, and relationship with food. We need to get to a point where it's as common for a dietitian to see another dietitian as it is for a therapist to see another therapist. In fact, I want my therapists to be in therapy. I want them to be well-supervised because they're human, so I know they've got their own shit, and I want to know that they have someone helping them through it so that it doesn't come out in their session with me. And we shouldn't be any different. So to my former business coach, respectfully, no, I will not go silently into the night, as they say. I will not hold my tongue while I watch my colleagues suffer because it's in poor taste or whatever to reach out a helping hand. And the more I think about it, the more conviction I have for my decision to participate in Bustle's article. Because here's the thing. I don't have such a simplistic view of humanity or this profession to believe for even a second that we need to be flawless or that we could ever expect to be flawless in order to be credible. And if you're struggling with body image or your relationship with food, you can always come to me. I will never judge you for it because I've been there and because I know how many other dietitians have too. And lastly, it's kind of similar to some of these others. I want to see this talked about more, not just in private supervision spaces behind closed doors, right? But I want to see webinars and conferences I want to see support on body image and relationship with food. 
back in uh, Fincy 2019, I will say Fincy approved this talk, which I was impressed by. Marcy Evans gave a great talk on body image for practitioners. And I want more of that. Not just body image for our clients and patients, body image for us. Let's talk about the changes that need to happen, the cultural shifts. Let's have panels and discussions, workshops and round tables. Because if we know something is a problem, right? We're recognizing this is a problem. Even if we didn't know what to do about it, even if we didn't have the other four points that I just listed, that's all the more reason to get more heads together in a room and talk it out. So I'll be very clear as I wrap up this episode. The fact that the Academy has not made any effort and explicitly stated in the Bustle article that there are no plans to address this issue. That doesn't mean that solutions don't exist. It means that the Academy is not interested in finding them. Perhaps one more indication that the Academy does not actually serve our best interests, but rather the interests of its donors. Or maybe that's my cynicism coming out again. But regardless, if the Academy won't speak out on it and do something about it, I will. I hope you will too. And if you're looking to take a deeper dive into the topics of why our profession is the way that it is, why we struggle with body image and burnout and imposter feelings, and what we can start doing about it, if you want to learn about confident advocacy and caring for yourself more compassionately, and if you wanted to feel supported rather than in competition with your colleagues, I'm enrolling the next cohort of my Empowering Dietitians group program, where we do all of that and more. You can check out the outro of this episode or the show notes if you want to learn more about that. As always, thank you for listening. And please remember, do not be afraid to speak up. Not once have I advocated for something I believed in and regretted it, even when it made my anxiety uncomfortable, even when because of that anxiety, I've had fleeting moments of doubt, even when I feared the worst, and yes, even when my decision to speak up has had consequences. Because ultimately, what I have to remind myself of is that not speaking out Resigning myself to the status quo, knowing that something can be done and refusing to do it, that for me, it's always worse. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Empowering Dietitians podcast. Your support means the world to me. If you find yourself struggling as a dietitian, I'd love to be able to support you in return. The next cohort of the Empowering Dietitians group program is starting in October and enrollment is open now. This program is uniquely designed to hold space for you as a practitioner. Experience the transformative power of small group support where you can show up each week in all of your messiness and know that your cohort and I will be there every step of the way, through the tears, the frustration, the fear, the changes in your career, the wins, all of it. 
Learn more about this program, which past participants have called life-changing at www.empoweringdietitians.com group. That's www.empoweringdietitians.com slash G-R-O-U-P.